Hey there, welcome to Westeros Weekly. I am Philip Molina, and joining me, Eric Voss. Guys, Game of Thrones is done. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's uh, we're a couple weeks after the finale episode, um, and we are, uh, you know, we're gonna have less structured conversation. I think oh, sure. these days about about Game of Thrones. I think it might get a little loose. Real. 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 Oh, it's about, it's about yeah. to get real. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we're going to really go back through uh, eight seasons of this thing and reflect through the series as a whole. I think there was a lot of obsession about that that last episode and, you know, hate it or hate it. Like, I think people are, are very uh, uh, focused on that. But I think it's time we start looking backward yeah. uh, at the series that we did love for years and years and years and got a lot of tattoos about. Yeah. Uh, show though. right yeah it's it's um it's easy just to focus so much on the ending of something but really it's the whole journey and now i've seen some real angry comments out there saying did i waste uh, several years of my life for right. this um, the, the crow said that yeah the quit violently he's gone, he's gone. it had <laughs> yeah. nothing to do with any puppeteering the last time we did this <laughs> and i don't know about you philip i refuse to see the past couple years of my life as a waste of time here at new rock stars we believe in gratitude and appreciation for the cool content that we get for free thanks to our parents HBO logins um, send us our money and I think yeah oh, wait we, sorry I was saying that up to HBO yeah sorry should I have not revealed that that we get paid by them <laughs> <laughs> well uh, sure there were some narrative choices we didn't totally agree with um, it didn't resonate with us in the final seasons it's okay to have mixed emotions about it but I don't think it is fair for anyone to say that the people working on the show are bad writers I think any great writer is capable of not doing their best work throughout consistently yeah. throughout their lives. But to say that they're bad writers, I think is is a low is is too much of a low right. blow. And I thought the the best way for us right now to go back and look at the show is to look back specifically at the scenes that did not exist in the books that the writers had to wholly invent for the show taking the characters that George R. R. Martin had created and the situations he devised, but taking them and writing your best possible fan fiction version right. of it, of which there are several when you go back through seasons one through eight, several, several moments that surprised book readers and just casual fans alike. And I think uh, in this episode, we should go back and look at those. Yeah. Uh, I, I started writing a video that I uh, didn't ever finish. Uh, it, it was like 20 pages long. And then I was like, we'll, we'll never, this is unshootable. Uh, the, the budget was $6 million. Release the Philip cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in it, it was just kind of explaining why, um, you know, the show left you that, that, that feeling that was kind of like it, uh, well, uh, I, 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 I described it as like uh, the wife of an unsullied on their wedding night. Where it's like, this I, is nice. Uh, uh, it's just, there's a key component missing. Missing, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, what I got into a lot was it is the idea of narrative uh, in the form of, of books that are about world building versus uh, television as a medium, which is about character development, uh, whether or not people are appreciative of the character development. It was, it focused on liking the characters a lot more than you do in the books rather than exploring the the society that is that George R. R. Martin is built as a reflection of ours. And so characters there behave the way that they do in social political commentary. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the stories that you make a, a satire piece or something, it's not really about, I mean, not that his was satire, but in a satire, you're trying to make a point more than you're trying to develop that character. Yeah. On TV, you need to fall in love with Tyrion and have him say, witty one-liners every episode so you can sell t-shirts and stuff right like sure. it's not really why but that's the the difference and i think that uh, a point that i wanted to make in that video and i'll never get around to was just essentially that they're one's not better than the other but they're so different that that kind of 
set everything on this weird path where it was a very jarring different uh, tone and style. But what I like uh, about what you're saying is we can acknowledge they're definitely not better than one better than the other. They're just different. So let's look specifically just at moments that are from the show that were actually really great improvements on, on story that does not exist in the books as of yet, at least. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and a reminder that you can get your game of Thrones coverage and updates early by subscribing to our Westeros weekly podcast feed. And if you're a Marvel fan, we have an inside Marvel mm-hmm. podcast feed that you can get all of your news and updates soon. And exclusive content more on there podcast too. feeds coming soon. Oh, yeah. Also more stuff on this. This feed coming that's uh, interesting and exciting uh, to talk yeah. about, uh, but we'll get to it when you, we get to it. Well, moving on to our first show-only moment, and you might have seen a preview of it. This is way back in Season 1, Episode 5, The Wolf and the Lion, the scene with Robert and Cersei when they finally get real and be honest with each other about what their marriage is. So this, there's an interesting story behind this. We've talked about this before. Uh, the Season 1 uh, situation was these showrunners were adapting these books, or specifically book one, and HBO came back to them and said, your season is too short. You need to shoot and write more episodes. So Dan and Dave were like, uh, okay, well, what scene, what's our dream scene? What's our best fan fiction thing we can come up with? And Robert and Cersei do not get point of view chapters. Robert never gets a point of view chapter. But in book one, we never see them alone when you're mm-hmm. reading the book. So they basically wrote the best version of the scene they could imagine this husband and wife, this king and queen having. And it is fantastic. It uh, is so uncomfortable. It's like the uh, the dinner uh, on The Office where uh, Jim and Pam go over to, to uh, Michael's place for her and you just see the uncomfortable relationship mm-hmm. that these two have. Uh, yeah, well, it. it's yeah. honest and it's vulnerable. So this is the one where, like... Uh, Robert is just raging about the state of things. He's like, that's all the realm is now. The backstabbing, the scheming, the ass licking, the money grubbing. Sometimes I don't know what holds it together. And Cersei goes, our marriage? And they both have a big laugh. Yeah, exactly. Where they both realize that they're just stuck in this political sham and they hate each other. But there's there's a truth to that. Yeah, the... They, they love ass licking. <laughs> That's the truth of that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, but who doesn't? But also, uh, what really reveals, obviously, is that they hate each other, but they uh, it's a, a, I don't know where it lined up year to year, but essentially it's a parallel to um, to House of Cards and this sure. idea that our relationship is is political machinations at, at work uh, and, and maneuvering, not the concept of love is, is a joke. No, it's not. Yeah. But also, you know, there, people compare that to real life couples. A lot of people feel like there's strategic moves. A lot of people felt like Bill and Hillary had that uh, at certain points in their mm-hmm. relationship where it's, man, are they, have they been running both for president since, you know, they met each other? Yeah. Uh, and throughout yeah. history, that's kind of been the name of the game, right? right? Like very rarely, especially in these high-born political marriages, they're arranged. They're basically set up so that wars will end or wars will be prevented or wars will begin. Uh, and if George R. R. Martin is uh, an ardent student of history, and that has been one of the big reasons Game of Thrones has been so amazing. Uh, so he's been able to reflect that. Uh, one difference from like The Lord of the Rings where Aragorn uh, and you know his love at the end, it's, mm-hmm. it seems like a true noble love she gives up her immortality to live with him and be queen with him forever and that's a nice romantic view of it but that's not really how history works you know what's what's interesting about uh this scene also is that it's not just uh what we were just saying about like this loveless thing they do there still is the pain of of uh not quite betrayal because you know liana mormont uh or sorry not liana stark uh came before cersei in, in robert's love life um but there is that jealousy still there, and you can tell that Cersei's kind of like, I guess I was never 
the one for you. Right. And she's accepted that, but at the same time, you can you can see some a little bit of like pain there, especially considering. I mean, she's she's in, especially in, in Westeros, like the highest of the highs. Like you know, you should be so thrilled if you get uh, Cersei Lannister, uh, and he clearly doesn't care. But then there's that really interesting point that Robert makes where. You know, if you think of uh, Lyanna Stark as Helen of Troy, mm-hmm. who, you know, the face that launched, uh, uh, is that a thousand ships a thousand or whatever? Ships. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a thousand ships. Uh, <laughs> she uh, was enough to cause this great chaos and throw millions of people's lives into jeopardy. And he says he can't remember what she looks like. Right. Which is so insane that it's, it's you know, shows the weight of, of uh, you know, powerful people and, and their love lives. And yet at the same time shows that it's still just normal people and their love lives where like you know if you haven't seen someone in in 10 years or something maybe it becomes harder and especially also he didn't have that much time with her as an adult woman right yeah Yeah, it's 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 reminiscent of like these bar fights that we've all been in several times several times um, yeah where they start over you know dudes fighting over a girl but then it just becomes so much more than that and it's not even about the girl anymore it's just about the the guys and their anger connecting yeah you know it's interesting (laughs) the the pilot episode at the dothraki wedding there's that specific point where the two dothraki are fighting over a girl and then the one who kills the other one ends up uh humping a different one altogether. Mm-hmm. So Daenerys judges that like, oh, so the thing they were fighting over, and so in a way, Robert, as much as he judges Dothraki as he right. savages, he is in that same sense, the same kind of savage man who's just angry that his pride was taken away from him. Uh, and he's drunken himself into this stupor now that he doesn't even remember what he was fighting over, uh, which is such an interesting character moment. And also like the reason I think this is such a great scene is uh, Dan and Dave worked in a lot of like major plot points that would end up becoming up later problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole idea of uh, Lyanna Stark, obviously she's gonna play a big role when we find out who John's real mother is. And then Cersei says an interesting line, uh, only a fool would meet the Dothraki in an open field. And Robert's like, oh, so I guess you are kind of, you, you think of yourself as this war tactician and this right. battle queen. Uh, and Robert just kind of rolls his eyes at it. But later in the series, we see Cersei become precisely that. And we see what happens when the Lannister forces do meet the Dothraki mm-hmm. in an open field. They get and, destroyed. You know, and also, I mean, she's the the daughter of her father right exactly like, who yeah. is exactly has probably prepared her just as well as he'd prepared jamie yeah, yeah. speaking yeah. of tywin i think the next uh scene that i really loved in the first season was the introduction of tywin lanster which i don't know about you i think was one of the best character introductions Man, on the show i mean like as an animal lover hard uh, to watch. It, it was hard to watch and yet at the same time it was i i, I normally I, I cover my eyes and i start crying but in this scenario i was like so engaged by this actor and i'd never seen the actor before and i was mm-hmm. just like oh. so he existed to me as or I, at least i had i didn't recognize you hadn't him, seen the ollie g movie where he has to dance <laughs> no, <the idea. laughs> no but uh but in this moment i mean i just it was tywin lannister from the books come to life and it was just so engaging and i remember this is actually around the time where i was like oh i'm hooked on this show yeah i felt the same way it's the uh we, again we don't have point of view chapters from either of these characters in book one but this is the moment where uh tywin's bloodily skinning this deer while lecturing his son about family. He tells Jamie the lion does not concern himself with the opinions of the sheep, which is just an interesting Lannister talking point that they repeat to each other throughout the series. And it shows Tywin as this hard ass who's not afraid to get his hands bloody to do what needs to be done to teach this lesson to his son and what is he doing he's skinning a stag stag, showing the the lannister lion betrayal of the baratheon stag so it works on so many thematic layers and 
until now we've heard about Tywin Lannister, but we haven't seen him in action. And we've seen Cersei, we've seen Tyrion, we've seen Jaime, uh, all three of these Lannister kids who use their words effectively. Mm-hmm. Whereas we don't, we don't really know who bore them. Now we can see the father who is is willing to get his hands bloody and, and be a jerk and do things like orchestrate the red wedding. But also they are establishing. You know, we've seen these these characters who are in their positions of power currently, but they're still just children, really, mm-hmm. and ultimately. So when you think that Tyrion is kind of the the most witty character on the show and even Cersei and, and Jamie they, everyone's like is so so uh, uh, presented as so they can't be beat right and then you meet their dad and it's like oh all of them are just trying to get his approval exactly that's that's what yeah. is motivating you know so we talk about Liana Mormont but this is the uh, the old disappointed dad face that launched a thousand shits too. <laughs> yeah. yeah this is a yeah. uh, like Jamie is the first time he's super emasculated on the show mm-hmm. up until this moment he's just on top of the world he's cocky he's he pushes a kid out the window and he gets away with all of it but this is kind of like the kid who bullies you in school seeing his dad pick him up in his truck in the parking lot and you just see his dad like yelling at him in the car and your bully starts crying and it's yeah satisfying and fascinating yeah. to watch. Uh, and you're like impressed with the dad and yeah. you cheer him on. Yeah. And you start to feel bad for your bully for a second. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, I'm hooked on this story now. <laughs> yeah. I want to. Yeah. Um, so ultimately we see Jamie, the Kingslayer stuck in his father's shadow and you see the, the layers of daddy issues that happen in the, in team Lannister that motivate these characters in seasons to come. Yeah. There's um. so another uh, one of my favorite uh, moments from the show that is, is not from the books is another Tywin moment though actually. And it's just the, those conversations that he has with Arya. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, are fascinating. These are, those were again, some of the best, best written uh, show only moments, like specifically the writing. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the little dance that they're playing with yeah. each other where to this day you go back and you watch it and you know that Tywin knows that she has a secret right that's our next you know, big moment in, yeah. in season two or episode seven so a whole season later yeah uh and what's interesting is that is sort of in the books Arya serves roose bolton mm-hmm. uh but in the show they're just like oh let's put the guy who is commanding the forces against Arya's brother rob the, as the guy that she serves like what great dramatic irony because she's listening into the movement of the lannister forces of mm-hmm. rob's victories on the battlefield uh he can tywin is so smart and that's what's great about watching earlier seasons is all the characters are at the top of their intelligence. It's just great to see smart characters be smart and outthink each other and not say everything that's on uh, their mind. Like there's layers of subtext and just the way that anytime people in war scenarios and political conspiracies talk to each other there's subtext there's layers of meaning to what they say and they only say what they need to say uh and in this these interactions with Arya and Tywin yeah as you said Tywin it seems like knows that there's a deeper secret to this servant girl in fact he's one of the few people who recognize that she's a girl at all like everyone else just kind of corrects her her uh her grammar her her lowly lowly born grammar but he and he also uh you know he's he's clearly I mean, if anyone was like kind of uh, playing the Game of Thrones almost effortlessly, uh, it was Tywin Lannister at that time. And it's all those we we would watch Littlefinger back in these early seasons. And we're like, that guy's always up to something else. Right. But the fact that we could pick up on that kind of shows like, well, maybe he wasn't amazing at it actually. Uh, but Tywin, I love in, in the, this early scene where where they meet. Uh, we looking back now are realizing, oh, he was making those kinds of moves where uh, he offers her food from his plate 
and we now realize, oh, it kind of like humanized him at the time. He he was worried about being poisoned. People right. had been making uh, threats on his life and, and trying to kill him. Uh, and then here's some lowly uh, person who clearly also is up to something. It's like, well, you know, if, if, if this boy dies, uh, no, nothing nothing's lost. And if uh, the boy lives, I look really nice as an old man that gave you food. Yeah. And they, uh, you see Arya's restraint and her patience in this moment because she gets a knife to cut mutton with and the camera pushes in on Tywin's neck as he's looking out the window mm -hmm. and she almost goes for it but then she holds back because she knows that there's no way she would survive or she'd get out of Hall alive if she did that so she for the first time exercises patience uh, she has power but she decides not to act on it and all the while Tywin is lecturing her about history mm -hmm. about famous lords of the past about war about legacy she learns about the um, Lord Heron who built Heron Hall right um, callously assuming that he'd be safe from dragon fire inside this castle without thinking that dragons can breathe fire or fly over him and cook him alive in his castle right. and turn into a ruin. So Arya's learning about all these things uh, and about the importance of what you leave behind. And these are kind of lessons that you see her apply later in the series. This is a big adult moment for her. She gets the father figure that she lost uh, from Ned, and Tywin gets a daughter figure that he lost from Cersei growing oh, older and, 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 and becoming joining, a rival to him. Uh, and joining Robert. Uh, and this was also from a time when everything was so efficient, right? Like the what if you were watching what's happening in the scene, listening to dialogue, a lot is happening at the same time. Yeah. Uh, you called out that it's mutton that he's eating. Mutton uh, is the flesh of a matured sheep, mm, uh, yeah. which is a nice like connection. If you if you understand when Tywin says something like the lion's not concerned himself with the uh, worries or whatever of, of a sheep. Yeah. Uh, he's like, yeah, literally, like that's all I eat. I the thing you I eat every day is what you're bringing to me. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's a great moment, and we never really get full confirmation on how much Tywin knew. He knew that she was masquerading. He says it's Millord. If you want to pretend to be right. Lowborn, you say Millord, not My Lord. That's what Highborn kids say. Um, and he knows that she can read too, because he sees her reading maps. So it's interesting that he never acts on that, uh, and it kind of remains a mystery how much he knew. You have to assume if he knew that she was Arya Stark, he would have. Oh, yeah, he would have yeah. used her. Absolutely uh, would have used her. As a hostage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's move on to another moment that uh, is great when you rewatch the series. It's the moment where Catelyn confesses her guilt over John, mm -hmm. and she's talking to Talisa. Now, in the books, Catelyn hates John just like she hates him on the show, but Michelle Fairley, as an actress, brought so much humanity to that character. So the writers wrote this really emotional confession for her in which uh, she talks to Talisa, Rob's new wife, and another character has a lot more to do in the show yeah. than the counterpart character does in the books. Uh, but Catelyn tells her that when John was a baby, she prayed to the gods for him to die because she hated him so much. John was a symbol but of... But who hasn't? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, that it's 3 a.m. That baby's still crying. Yeah. Like, you know what, God? If, uh, yeah. <laughs> Give me an out. Um, the, uh, so... John came down with a fever as a baby, and he almost did die. Mm -hmm. And then Catelyn felt so much guilt that she prayed to the gods again, begging them to let the boy live. And she promised that if John were to recover, she would raise him as her own son. And then once the boy did recover, she's like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she continued to treat him horribly. And now she believes that all the horror that befell her family was her fault. She said, this is all because I couldn't love a motherless child. Right, mm. it's like a insult to the mother, yes. the, the god that they, or one of the gods, or something. But yeah, that's something that the matriarch role often uh, struggles with in in these uh, kinds of stories. Is uh, anything that befalls the family 
we think of the the soldier, the warrior, as the defender of the family, but the matriarch in these stories often feels like it's actually at the end of the day, the last line of defense is the mother. Right. Uh, and if you think of it from the animal kingdom, very much yeah. right, it's like, you know, stay away from a, a, a mama cat or a mama boss. Like, they're very mm. dangerous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And what's cool here, in this moment, she's weaving um, the thing that people who pray to the mother weave. It's just... Um, to the gods, to the seven gods, this kind of prayer thing. She was weaving it when Bran was sick to kind of pray for his recovery. And it was just this nice little bit of world building from the show. The mm -hmm. religions of Westeros are fascinating yeah. as George R. Martin has created them. I mean, you're a convert, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah I keep jumping back and forth between the faith and um, the Zoroastrianism. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but the it was just a nice little piece of this culture that in later seasons, the show just kind of departed from because it was no longer serving the plot and the story that they needed to tell. But man, I, and I, maybe they felt that they kind of gassed out on everything religion-wise in season uh, five and six with the faith and the high sparrow in King's Landing. But I, I loved the little winks at people praying at Weirwood Trees, the fact that John would go pray at the Weirwood Tree and do his uh, vows there mm -hmm. instead of in the Sept in Castle Black because he was raised differently and he right. identified with his father's religion. There's all these little things that feel so real and authentic, uh, and this is an example of that. Uh, just like little plot things, like what are the characters doing with their hands? And I feel like in season seven and eight, there's a lot of characters just standing in rooms with like brilliant framing and beautiful sets, but like you don't understand like what they're physically doing in that moment. Right. They don't necessarily feel like real people. They feel like actors on a stage. Yeah, something I liked about the story about John uh, and the fever uh, is that it sets up something that not at this point, but but later we start to see John is somehow the most tested and yet yes. the most. Uh, lucky or, or uh, yeah. survivor he was of things. born with that plot on yeah. it yeah yeah exactly uh, but it is almost like it makes you wonder is he uh, destined to to be tortured and always be in peril or is he destined to no matter what always survive the day right yeah he has uh, it makes you wonder about his mortality at all of course he, he died on the show but was resurrected did the gods or did the lord of light always intend on this boy being a hardened survivor mm -hmm. to play some greater role so this again was not something in the books we didn't know that baby john had a, a fever in the books but the show kind of imbued him with this strength a fever, yeah. a fever. Yeah. um and uh yeah it, it definitely sets him up as this new hero but it also gives catelyn a moment of humanity this is maybe six episodes before she gets killed at the red wedding so in a way it's kind of like um, a person on death row giving a confession mm -hmm. before you know they die so it was a, a nice moment that humanized her character and and you can see maybe her death is a punishment for a lifetime I mean, of it, torment to it, john well and definitely uh for her probably some of her final thoughts are i was right because she looks around her and her entire family is being slaughtered and she's like you know just because I, I couldn't love John. Like, it's exactly what her worst fear was. Absolutely. Uh, before we continue, we want to thank uh, ExpressVPN for helping us make this episode. Admit it, you think that cybercrime is something that happens to other people, right? You may think that no one wants your data or that hackers can't grab your passwords or credit card details, but you'd be wrong. It happened to you. It happened to me. Yeah. It happens to a lot of you, yeah. I assume. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest and cheapest ways for hackers to make money. And when you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card information on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why 
we decided to take action to protect myself from cyber criminals. I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. ExpressVPN is easy to use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, or tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash rockstars. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash rockstars for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash rockstars to learn more. Now you just got to stop leaving your Facebook open. I no, I refuse. Oh, you enjoy what I do to that? Yes. Yeah. I'm asking for this. Uh, let's talk about uh, our next moment that uh, was from the show, uh, and and or, or at least more important in the show, uh, and that's just the. I mean, it, it resulted. It has this famous quote in it, but it's the little finger embarrassing, mm-hmm. uh, where mm-hmm. he reveals essentially his thesis or his modus operandi or something. Uh, chaos is a ladder. Yes, and and you know, didn't it seem like when we were watching this in season three, it was episode six that uh, these one of these two characters might win the Iron right. Throne. It's these two background political conspirators who are in the literal shadow of the Iron Throne, gazing at it, longing for it. And for this moment, they seem like by far the smartest characters mm-hmm. in Westeros. Because you realize at this point that Littlefinger is a mastermind behind the War of the Five Kings. And we know from the books that Varys is kind of the mastermind behind the Dance of Dragons. And we know that in season one, he was trying to get Daenerys assassinated. And then he... Uh, started to plant the seeds of maybe I could use Daenerys to retake mm-hmm. the Iron Throne, which he does in season five. So we're kind of wondering in the end game at this point, which of these two geniuses will take the Iron Throne, despite neither of them having important names or neither of them seeming like good enough candidates, but just by their, their wits and their skills and their determination alone might be the one to take it. And they open up a lot of interesting points about politics and the, right. the nature of conflict on the show. Yeah, it's like their campaign managers uh, yeah. that are having a kind of off-the-record meeting uh, in, the, in the background. I think that it, um, it makes me long for, well, it made me long for moments like this later when uh, in the final season we see that Tyrion, who Tyrion kind of adopts a bit of, of this role too, mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, at least he's the front-facing campaign manager too for, for Daenerys. Uh, when we see that, Tyrion and Varys are on the same side. That kind of like bummed me out a little bit uh, at the end there because I I was missing this, right? The two great masterminds on opposing sides and, you know, having different goals. In the books, there's a different uh, potential heir to the throne, an additional potential heir to the throne. And so the idea that if that had been included in the show, maybe Varys would have been trying to make his moves to support that character. Tyrion is trying to support Daenerys. And then we have this a very complex uh, um, struggle for the throne, but but the political side of it, which, you know, we went through the Night King story uh, and we kind of knew something's going to happen with the throne part, but it kind of fell together. Mm -hmm. uh, And there was a lot of, you know, she is my queen. uh, I have have one queen uh, kind of stuff instead of, really good debate about, well, is, should it be this person or should it be this person? Yeah. Instead of John just saying, well, no, I don't want it to be me. Yeah, I, this is a scene that I go rewatch probably once a year 
because it just reminds me of a time on Game of Thrones where people, again, were just smart. Like right. seeing two smart people talk to each other. They're these two people playing like verbal chess, you mm -hmm. know, and you're kind of wondering what's really going on under in the subtext of these characters. And it brings up this fascinating point about chaos, which is something that exists throughout the show. Game of Thrones is something that right. uh, it always subverts our expectations. And these two people are pondering on that subject. Littlefinger believes that chaos is a ladder. It's a positive thing. It's a chance for opportunity for people who otherwise wouldn't get it. Whereas Varys only sees chaos as a destructive force. When things don't go according to plan, the innocent people die. So it's kind of these dueling philosophies that make us wonder, do we love the unpredictable, bloody nature of Game mm -hmm. of Thrones? Or is this something that is uh, reckless and irresponsible because it it, it kind of is this kind of Joker mindset where do we want to see the world burn? Is it fun, but is it responsible? Well, and you don't have to agree with either of them, but uh, in terms of what you think you should do or one should do, but they're both right. What they're both describing is the Wild West. Yeah. Right? And the Wild West is that me people use it as a metaphor to mean, you know, it's crazy. There's there's no rules, but also you could get rich. Absolutely. Uh, which is is the the idea that works for both of them. People will die. It's a Wild West and you will get rich uh, if you survive. Yeah. Um, so season three ends with the Red Wedding. Obviously, everyone kind of agrees is one of the best sequences on the show, but we knew it was going to happen in the book. So let's move on to a moment that was not in the books at the start of season four. This is just the moment with Arya and the Hound when they're in the inn. And it's just a nice small little moment with great dialogue. And I remember starting, I think we were watching that first episode of season four and we're like, oh, this is just so great. Now Arya does get like a vengeful moment where she murders mm -hmm. a guy in the books, but they put it in a new setting specifically where she, she runs into Polliver, she gets Needle back, she avenges Lamy. And they're in this great moment where they're watching the innkeeper and his daughter get taken advantage of. And the hound uh, establishes his famous love of chicken. Right. And he brings up eating chickens like eight times in the scene. And it's just, it's funny. It's, there's so much great dramatic irony. And there's uh, just several layers. The hound doesn't even want to be here. It was Arya who dragged him in there because she recognized Polliver. Uh, and it's just a great moment that fortifies their friendship. So she's less of a captive mm -hmm. now and more of uh, an equal and a partner. And, it, and this is the glimpse of Arya, mm -hmm. the real Arya. Uh, or at least the Arya she becomes. If you go compare her acting and, uh, in the character in the last season to this scene, you'll see she does this stare yeah. that is this you know stare that like is seeing all the places needle can go through you. Or right, something. right, yeah. Uh, and it starts right here in this moment, except you know so many years earlier, and we probably didn't totally process how far down that path should go but you know it was it was there from the beginning yeah, yeah. this is the episode it was titled two swords and an open with tywin melting down ned stark's uh, right. steel sword into the two that he gave to joffrey and to jamie but really there were other swords in the scene and really the reacquisition of needle was mm -hmm. such an important moment arguably more important than the other titular two swords the way that she uses needle um just if I remember correctly, just like a little poke in the throat. Yeah, just a slow little thing just a little, into make it a his little throat. Hole in the yeah, throat, and then he bled out. Uh, or in his like windpipe or something. Um, or yeah, just he bleeds out. Uh, to me, also was this understanding that Arya in this moment realizes um, the rules are bullshit, mm -hmm. and this is how easy it is to take someone's life. Yeah. Look, I just made that motion, and now that person's not going to be here in a moment, and I've avenged someone. You know, like yeah. it is this. This she is creating a whole new world order inside of her head. Of this is how my world can work. I can walk up to someone, 
poke a you know poke a hole in them and then they're done yeah um from here we move on to one of the most shocking moments on the show probably the first moment that surprised both book readers and fans alike because at this point uh, book readers had seen the occasional like conversation scene that was fun that they didn't know would happen this mm -hmm. is the scene that changed the nature of the show and the game as a whole so this was season four episode four oath keepers that suddenly ended with the shot of Craster's baby being taken by the White Walkers, and we follow them far, far up north, further than the books had ever gone, and we meet who ends up getting revealed as the Night King, mm -hmm. and we see what their whole objective is, is to take babies uh, and transform them into new young White Walkers, and we learn so much about the White Walkers in this moment, but it's really just a great mystery box exactly because it creates so many questions they have a, a culture now they're they're lined up in this uh, almost uh, it's like a ceremonial pattern they have what looks like an ice altar mm -hmm. uh, there's like a weird spirituality to this rather than just being these uh, in shadow ice demons that are very hard to kill and somehow undead we now it looks like they have a culture and a society uh, and a home Right. Um, that's more than the book readers ever knew about the White Walkers. And this is a good example of why we both defend the writers of the show, not because we think they're flawless, because, I, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever read anything from a writer that didn't have flaws. Uh, it's these little adjustments that make them, uh, that show their understanding of storytelling. So to introduce a scene like this, uh, you referred to it as mystery box, I refer to it as question tool. Uh, they use this moment of mystery or question to get you through exposition and the political uh, chaos. And, you know, we're on the other side of the Red Wedding. So it's it's not even it's it was in a point in the show where we we, we initially thought we were going to follow Ned Stark. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh, my God, he died. I guess we'll follow Rob Stark. Oh, my God, he dies. Uh, and we haven't really established our new protagonist fully. We don't I mean, it's a while before John is is you know, really that relevant. Uh, so in this moment, that's them realizing, I don't want to say it's a flaw necessarily in George's story, because again, the books, it's so such a different style of storytelling, but they're acknowledging in this moment, in the greater story, the audience is no longer as invested as they were pre-Red Wedding. It actually, mm -hmm. the Red Wedding is such a great moment, but it actually is a very hard thing to write after yeah. before something else huge, huge happens. So they insert a scene that gives you this huge question and it's it, it now provides gasoline for you to kind of have that in the background and now you can get through some more shaking up. Uh, the Probably one of the most famous examples for me of this is the opening to the Breaking Bad pilot. Oh yeah. It starts with just insane chaos you have so many questions and then it goes to the most boring story you can ever imagine it's a middle school science teacher just going through his day mm -hmm. and it does that for like 20 minutes but it earned the 20 minutes by just starting with the chaos same thing this earned like episodes and episodes of just slight political maneuverings yeah and uh i think this is the moment that got people like us invested in game of thrones to make videos mm -hmm. because from here on outward, we had so much crazy online theories right. stemming from this moment about how the White Walkers, because now 
the White Walkers move from a background lingering existential threat on the show to active antagonists that might play an even greater role in this series as it moves on. Uh, and we'll talk about later how that changed uh, our expectations in Game of Thrones. Um, because the the rest of season four, the Volca season five, kind of hit like a stalling point because George R. R. Martin's plots in the book started to hit a bit of a stalling point. You know, a lot of the characters kind of reached what seemed like their goals but didn't have a whole lot to do. I assume in the next two books that he'll uh, make pivots again mm-hmm. um, but the writers weren't really sure exactly where he was going with those storylines but this happened uh, they finally made a big bold decision at the end of season five with the hard home episode right. which saw uh, it was a step forward from the craster's baby to the night king introducing himself uh, to the world as this new villain that is going to be um, an immediate threat to John. And now, to be clear, the hard home incident happens in the world of the books. It's mentioned, mm-hmm. but we don't see a chapter from with someone's point of view seeing that happen. So book readers knew once we saw that episode title was hard home that something bad was going to happen there. Right. But as it unfolded in front of our eyes, I think we're all shocked by the the disaster of well, Hardhome. And it, it this is another brilliant move, honestly, and it's one of the things that TV does really well, is it centralized the conflict into an individual. Yes. And it gave us someone to fear instead of a general presence, right? Like a lot of people talk about the the shark uh, in Jaws being something that was like, well, we didn't need to see him so much. It's like, yeah, but could you imagine if all we saw was multiple shark fins throughout the movie? it would be uncentralized. Yes. Uh, And so to give us this focus, it actually made it a more direct threat. Something that I I remember having this thought way back when, when I was so, I was so unsettled when uh, in the the previous moment we talked about uh, when Craster's baby gets converted. And then in this moment, we see it on mass, the idea of the blue eye change. Mm -hmm. And I remember finding it unsettling for like in, in a, a different way and a long time later I was just writing something uh, history related and I realized that way back when I first saw this it um, I subconsciously I was thinking of the Nazi experiments where Hmm. this this concept uh, they used to try to make eyes blue uh, oh, and it was it literally like with like acid. Yeah, the whole eugenics eye. that they would try to right. genetically and control. And so this idea yeah. of trying to convert who's already there into, you know, his master race and these blue eyed, light skinned, uh, very light skinned mm-hmm. uh, uh, white walkers. Uh, obviously, you know, there's already someone typing a comment about like, that's a stretch. But I do think that there is this unsettling thing of taking what we already are and converting it into what you think we should be. Uh, yeah. Which I think it was just like there. We don't know exactly. I mean, the the blue eyes is something that is established previously, and I don't think that it was done purposely. But I think that deep down, uh, especially dark featured people, uh, we're we're very scary of the blue eyes, like you. Well, everyone with blue eyes is a murderous, soulless drone. Mm-hmm. I think that's a given. Uh, but I, I see what you're saying, and I think the horror of this moment mm-hmm. uh, is is unparalleled. The way Sapochnik shot the sequence, just with the simplicity of the dead people's eyes flicking open right. kind of silently. It, it felt like a kind of a zombie feel. And this is a moment where I feel like Game of Thrones pivoted from something where the the writing was in control to something where the directing took the driver's wheel. Uh, because from this moment onward, it seemed like the writers were writing to 
gifted directors like Sapochnik to deliver the biggest, most fascinating right. spectacle. HBO was pouring money into the show at this point. So everything that happens after Hard Home, including Hard Home, feels more like building up toward big uh, spectacle, big epic battle moments with a lot of extras and a lot of uh, CGI. Yeah, and obviously directing is a role that doesn't exist in books, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's the writer's medium. Uh, television actually is often described as a writer's medium, but that actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, the idea of the importance of directing. Not this moment, but another Miguel Sapochnik battle is the Battle of the Bastards. Mm-hmm. That episode is so good. Go watch that episode again. You can watch it on mute and you're, you're blown away, but you can watch it on mute. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that it's not really the writing that's blowing you away. Miguel Sapochnik is referencing the Great War films, Ron, yeah. and, and a bunch of And we'll of talk about Battle of the Bastards in a second. That's coming okay, up. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll transition yeah. there for a second. But uh, my point there is that there was a weird sound. Uh, an eye just fell off the raven. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he's given up. <laughs> uh, uh, well, luckily, he's got three. Yeah. Uh, I think that Miguel Sapochnik showed us, look how good I can make this in spite of some awkward writing. So as we go through the Battle of Bastards, you if you do rewatch it, you have to admit that there are some dumb choices made that Jon Snow is he he, he tries to attack all the men by himself basically. Uh, and then that's also the one where the Knights of the Vale uh, come in, they save the day, but it actually is kind of a another one of these moments where it was like I don't know if that made me feel great about our characters where like these other characters came out of nowhere and why didn't Sansa tell them? I mean, it's battle strategy. Why would he not say I have people coming up the rear to, to help? So it has all the, a lot of actually uncomfortable moments, even though it's one of my favorite episodes, but it's because it's one of the best directed episodes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we kind of see that trend going on into season six. So I think one of the impressive moments with the writing of season six uh, until before the ending was the whole arc with the Tower of Joy. This is a moment that book readers had wanted to see, one of the famous past moments. So I think it was a wise move for the writers to dramatize that, show a young Ned Stark, show the fear of him in that moment, because we always remembered it as a story that Bran would tell and other people around uh, the, the continent would tell about how Ned Stark was able to defeat um, uh, Sir Arthur Dane, whereas Ned would remind Bran, he's like, the only reason I was able to do that is because Howland Reed, and we see in that moment where Ned's about to be killed, and we we feel scared because even though we know Ned's going to live on, uh, we feel that he's going to die in that moment. Helen Reed stabs him through the chest. But really what's impressive about the Tower of Joy is the way they kind of structured the reveal of Jon Snow's true lineage, which is something that many book readers had kind of speculated would be the case. But that reveal was so emotionally and dramatically done. And it was just super satisfying to see the show decide to stay true to that storyline because they don't have to use all these things and I, I just think it was impressive that by revealing John as the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna it gives this uh, orphan a victory um, or, yeah as, as someone who is long suffering on the show believing he's a bastard but specifically what's brilliant about it is they tell us the truth about John seasons before John ever learns about mm-hmm. it and what's best about John is he's a character who knows nothing he's he's more interesting to watch when he's kind of left out of the loop so they cut from baby John to real John to to tell us the truth about him but we we never have to worry about uh, him knowing because it's 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 not as fun when he knows and honestly when I, I think it's also a little partially like once John knows, I'm sure the writers were a little bit, George didn't really tell us much about John's reaction to yeah. it. So I think that is one of the reasons why it gets pushed very late. 
And if you do look back at the last season, that probably is one of the flaws I can acknowledge outright is it feels as if John finding out ultimately doesn't matter. Right. Um, I think that'll go differently in the books, actually. Yeah. That'll be interesting. Now, before we continue, we also want to thank Mac Weldon for helping us make this episode. Uh, Mac Weldon makes smartly designed men's clothing, and their user experience is super easy and convenient. They made their name with men's underwear, and they have some really cool ones that have silver sewn into them that makes yeah. them naturally antimicrobial and yeah. anti-odor. Basically, yeah, they smell better. Yeah, yeah, which is great for underwear. <laughs> and Mac Weldon has expanded beyond underwear and have all kinds of men's clothing like sweatshirts shirts, hats, swim trunks, all kinds of stuff. I just ordered some of their t-shirts because I, I like the colors and they had 16 <laughs> to pick from. The website was easy to use and the whole process was super convenient. I also got some of those silver underwear because, you know, I'm just, I'm excited to uh, try them out and, you know, apply some scientific method to my hygiene. I was a microbiology major and this is the only way I use it, was, <laughs> was wearing Weldon underwear. Uh, for 20% off your first order, head to MacWeldon.com and enter the promo code Westeros at checkout. Again, that's promo code Westeros at MacWeldon.com for 20% off your first order. Um, now, I want to move on to later in season six. This was, we were talking about this, the Battle of the Bastards. Mm -hmm. Now, this was something not in the books. It's a plot point that John seemed to be headed toward before the his Night's Watch mutineers took him out. Uh, but there was a whole idea with the pink letter where Ramsey Bolton was baiting him to come back and, and reclaim his uh, right. family's home. Now, Philip, you're bringing up some some interesting points before about how the, the writing seemed a little convenient to, to set up these uh, spectacles. What I liked about this is it's not always easy to deliver effective payoff to see what characters get what they deserve. And this happened both for the victors and the defeated in this battle. Uh, to see Sansa be the one to stick the dogs on Ramsay mm -hmm. to put him to death was a very satisfying feeling. An important moment for Sansa. Yes. Uh, to see John tackle Ramsay and beat the crap mm -hmm. out of him. Uh, to see Ramsay specifically use arrows throughout this battle as mm -hmm. his primary weapon. Uh, earlier in the series, we had seen him practicing on the flayed man uh, people out before the Winterfell grounds. Uh, so he uses it to kill Rickon, uh, and he uses it against 1-1, and he uses it against Jon uh, in that final charge in the Winterfell courtyard. Mm -hmm. I thought there was some really smart choices made, uh, both by the writers and the director of that episode, to make that the most effective payoff. And I think in the finale of season six, this is kind of the finale that I think this is, if the show had ended at the end of season six, yes, there would have been some questions people still had, but I think people would have been satisfied right. with the show. This is, I mean, despite what I was saying about the writing, actually, this is my favorite movie in Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. right? it, it, that's really what it was. It has its own arc, its own story. Uh, it's kind of its own twist ending uh, and all of that. And, you know, it is so self-contained and done so well. Uh, but again, it, I feel like that's, this is when I fell in love with Miguel Sapochnik. Yeah. Uh, and now we're getting married, so look at me. Hey, congratulations. Uh, yeah. No, but uh, it was, I just was watching this. I was like, why do I feel it so much? You know, we had, the, the series uh, up to this point, we had fallen in love with the dialogue very mm -hmm. much. Uh, a lot of that was the mastery of, of George R. R. Martin and his dialogue. But later when I talk about this show, I've often said some of the best creators and filmmakers in the world are working on it. Uh, this is who I mean. I mean Miguel Sapochnik. And if you, I mean, you can go, I did a breakdown of this episode actually where I really get into the directing and, and cinematography techniques he's using in order for us to feel it. But specifically, there's that famous moment where John is overtaken by a sea of people. 
uh, and he basically drowns within them. And it also was very reminiscent of uh, there was that shot of Daenerys Targaryen, so it had uh, where she was surrounded by uh-huh. people as well, yeah, yeah, the and it moment, had yeah. the the nice parallel of, like these people are on similar paths. And yes, eventually it did cross, but actually just in the directing of it, you can. I remember you. There's, I believe there was like a heartbeat that you could hear mm-hmm. uh, there, and then you also had. Um, these shots, it was all designed in a way to make you feel like you were drowning. Yeah. And I felt it with this and I felt it in Blade Runner 2049. Oh yeah. Uh, there's a great moment there where you in your seat start feeling like you're drowning. And this is when I was like, oh man, this guy is so good that this is, pro- I, I, now that it's done, honestly, still one of my favorite episodes. Uh, and it's still yet separate from the writing of the episode. Yeah. And speaking of Miguel Sapochnik, I think we can agree maybe his best direction on the show came in the following episode, the season six finale, The Winds of Winter, mm-hmm. when Cersei blew up the Sept. So in my opinion, this is the best sequence of the series. The first 20 the minutes. The first 20 yeah. minutes, yeah. It's so well written, directed, edited. The music is brilliant. This is the first time Miguel uh, um, Ramin Jawadi used piano in right. a score on the show to show the shifting um, feel, uh, the winds of winter changing. Right, it's a new season. Yeah, and the, the way the scene, the sequence was shot for 20 minutes, however long it lasts, each of the characters begins privately in their room getting dressed for their mm-hmm. day, and you realize that they're prepping for their funerals. The way right. he shot them makes it look like clothes being put on a body by a mortician. Uh, so it's also a Sapochnik trademark uh, shot to, he opens uh, most of his episodes with the small choices yes. that people are making that are going to be part of this huge uh, epic event. So this is a perfect example of foreshadowing on the show. They gave us just enough information to make us think that something like this could happen, but also make us feel surprised when it did happen. Because of course, Wildfire was teased the first firework at the Battle of Blackwater. But then throughout the show, there was just little bits of dialogue where characters were like, well, of course the Mad King did put wildfire all over the city. Uh, or do and, you remember uh, it, it, this such a small choice? And this is like the show is being so subtle and we're still such assholes for scrutinizing every frame so much that we still picked up on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a shot that's panning through, uh, I believe, the Red Keep and the camera's swinging vertically and it c- crosses across the ground and uh, on the floor you see a sewer grate. And, yeah. and it kind of just holds for a second and then keeps going. And we're like... That means that there's a wildfire beneath the in the like sewers. Essentially, right. it's gonna like we had so much based on just that idea. It just reminded you that there were tunnels. That right. there was a system. There was also yeah. hints of green started to get uh, yeah uh, presented in throughout. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is another example of a uh, moment that mm-hmm. if this were the finale of the show, I think it would have been okay mm-hmm. because Cersei's story essentially ends here. Once she becomes the queen and she gets the throne. Uh, Tommen has committed suicide, you know, so that fulfills her prophecy. She gets what she wants, but she becomes the ultimate villain of the show. And everything that happened afterwards with Cersei was just not as interesting, in my opinion. So if if the series had ended, or if this had been somehow, if you could restructure things to make this happen in the final season, uh, I would have been okay with this. Yeah, this is the first time that we see her staring out that window, sipping her wine, and it feels so delicious in that moment, yeah. her, her victory. And then she never leaves that spot again, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> like for the rest of the series, she's basically like, you know what? How about I only do my scenes in this window here? Right. Now, moving on to uh, season seven. Of course, the the wall being collapsed by Viserion was fascinating. Uh, but 
uh, that's something that I feel was all Justin, spectacle, not yeah, a ton of writing yeah. going on. But in at the end of season six, Arya kills Walder Frey, and season seven begins with what I think was like the last moment I really just devoured the writing of this moment, which is when she gets revenge on the Freys by taking Walder Frey's face and wearing it. And when season seven begins with Walder Frey, we're like, whoa, is this a flashback? Like, what is going on? But uh, we get to see Arya get revenge against the phrase and kind of replay the Red Wedding the way that Cersei got revenge against the Faith by blowing up the Sept. Kind of revenge for her walk of shame moment. Arya gets uh, her revenge for her walk of shame by killing mm-hmm. the phrase and giving this wonderful monologue uh, that we get to see delivered by this actor who's like one of the best character actors ever on the show uh, talking about how you should have ripped out all the wolves root and stem and if you leave one lone wolf. Mm-hmm. They'll come back and get you. Uh, and it's just this fascinating reveal as they're drinking the wine, they get poisoned, and then she walks out. Um, but I don't know how you felt about this. To me, this felt like this sh- it almost was the show jumping the shark after this. It, well, after, right? Yeah. So this moment was very necessary, and I think it's actually one of the successful realignments between the story in the books and the story in the show. Uh, because this is something that Lady Stoneheart uh, w- yes. like it would have done. Uh, or and this this taking vengeance on the on the red wedding is is basically the character's purpose. So giving that to Arya actually I thought was a, a great choice. It was the character that we wanted to see and and we needed to see start going down that path if she was going to become ruthless. Also, all in retros in retrospect now we can see this is the moment that we get Arya's faceless man capabilities. Yes, it actually is really even though she's used it in other ways, she's with Mary Trent and whatnot, this is really the payoff of two seasons of Arya training uh, to be this this faceless man. Later, we get the payoff with the Night King, obviously, and that's for her fighting ability, basically. But the spy stuff that she'd been working on, uh, I wish it had come back after this, actually. Yeah. Uh, but really, th- this is it. And so I think, I yeah, I thought this was a great moment. Uh, I do think, though, I'm, I'm going to stand by kind of what I was saying, where I started to notice subtle things happening in the writing the season before this. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, this season is now fully embracing the, the D&D uh, mm. version of the story, and it did start to get a little bit more spectacle-based and a little bit more uh, what makes good TV. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, while the writers may have intended this on being uh, the last time Arya would uh, use a famous person's face to orchestrate this assassination, uh, I think there was some mismanagement of expectations there mm-hmm. because after this, I mean, people like us who are doing theory videos online, everyone was wondering who next, who right. Arya would use uh, would she use Jamie's face? Would she wear the Night King's face right. to go kill Cersei, or you know, Jamie's face to go kill Cersei? So I think there was some kind of uh, mismanagement expectations, and I think we were seeing, and many of us were pointing this out, season seven and eight. It was more about like rushing to get to the next big moment and payoff, and to kind of close the book and close the chapter, rather than just like living in the character's world for a second. But I feel like in season eight we got one great moment of that, which what came in episode two, a Night of the Seven Kingdoms, when Jamie knighted Brienne. This picture looks like he's chopping her head in half yeah, slowly <laughs> slicing across her face just like a yeah. ghost ship yeah 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 uh but this is the moment where jamie and brienne's platonic relationship reaches its emotional climax mm-hmm. by anointing brienne and this is, i think my favorite part of it not only does he give her something she deserves that she has earned more than any other character jamie in a way is kind of renewing his own vows and repairing the damage to his honor that he did by becoming the kingslayer 
by the crimes he committed against Bran, by all the bad things he's done on the show, Jamie's trying to find redemption in that moment by passing the torch on right. to someone else. To me, this should have been the equivalent of their sex scene. Yes. This I, I enjoyed this a thousand times more. Um, but and not because I, I you know, uh, I'm jealous uh, of who, mm-hmm. uh, but because I thought this was where the emotional climax of their story was and it felt like it needed to be here. And this was also, you know, this is why I also thought Brienne was going to die because mm-hmm. it felt like she had kind of com- completed a, a bit of a journey there. But I mean, this drew real tears, you know, this, yeah, this was, for sure. and, and this was a appropriate payoff to something that had been coming for so long, uh, which is why I felt like the sex scene was unnecessary. Yeah, I agree. And it's cool because if you think about it, by returning to Winterfell, Jamie brings back the other half of Ned Stark's old sword. So his sword is the one he got from Joffrey after Joffrey died. He gave his original sword to Brienne, Oathkeeper. Mm-hmm. So now the twin swords that were melted down from Ned Stark's sword are kind of reunified and reforged in a way. That's a sex scene I would have been yeah, yeah. just banging the swords together right, right, the whole right. time. Uh, and I think, in a way, Ned Stark's legacy, his spirit, is kind of overseeing the honor of this mm-hmm. moment. So Ned Stark it kind of comes full circle with Ned bearing his sword in the first episode. Um, so not to say everything that came after that in season eight was bad. I just think this is the last great character moment with really, really good writing that made us feel like this is the same show that was there in season one. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to know what you guys think. Are there ones that we didn't mention in this episode? Clearly yeah. there were, there were Giant great episodes. Titty. Yeah. Oh, that was great. <laughs> so much like good yeah. uh, comedy writing that happened on the show and like good moments that were just really well adapted from the books. So we're not saying the red wedding wasn't worthy of mentioning. Of course, red Wedding's great. Of course, Ned Stark's execution is great. There's, lots of great things that happen on the show but I think uh, the writers who are working on this really show that they're capable of not needing George R. R. Martin's exact dialogue and kind of create great character moments um, the character but, moments are actually you know a lot of people think that that's that was their downfall I actually think it was because they went through they actually focused more on character than they did on uh, world arc yeah uh, which is what they were they'd been going through initially so they they definitely do actually know what they're doing with character uh, I just gotta wonder maybe if they'd started in charge of the character arcs and then it maybe wouldn't have felt jarring perhaps but let us know in the comments down below uh, what your favorite moment was maybe that we mentioned one that we missed and uh, keep uh, make sure that you're subscribed to new rock stars and subscribe to our podcast feed Westeros Weekly wherever you get your podcasts and stay tuned for more interesting uh, podcast content that we'll be having soon yeah uh, make sure to hit me up on Twitter I chat with you all in, on there it's at uh, FEMO and you can also hit me up on Instagram at Philip Molina I'll chat with you there too. Yeah, and you can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at EA Voss. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Thank, th- thank us for joining w- we. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>